Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Cheryl Venn. Cheryl is a professor of science fiction at UC Riverside and the author of a number of books, including science fiction from the MIT Press Central Knowledge Series and Biopolitical Futures, which comes out later this year. We'll be talking about the roles that speculative fiction plays in our society, ways to critically navigate both utopian and dystopian narratives, and how science fiction thinking is and isn't making it into the corporate world. We'll also be giving you more than two dozen of our favorite book recommendations. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Professor Cheryl Venn. I'm here today with Cheryl Vint. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. So uh, today we're going to be talking uh, about science fiction, which is definitely one of my uh, favorite topics. I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. Um, and you uh, just wrote a book uh, entitled Science Fiction, right? Yes. Yeah. Very creative title on my part. <laughs> it's, yeah. The, so SEO, search Cheryl Vent Science Fiction. Uh, but I, I started reading this recently and oh my God, I both appreciate, you know, it's it's been teaching me some new things and also kind of like formalizing some thoughts that I've had over the years. Um, and I just wanted to maybe start with uh, the, the description that you gave of science fiction in the beginning uh, of uh, it presenting a vision of the world made otherwise and the possibilities that might flow from such a change. Uh, and I thought that was such a such a fantastic way of describing it because it is so hard to kind of nail down what science fiction is. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious if maybe you can um, elaborate on that to start or just help, help us kind of ground in, in, in what the what what makes science fiction, what makes speculative fiction and uh, maybe where the controversies are around that definition. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for the kind words about the book. Uh, so at least for people who study science fiction in an academic context, context, there's like endless numbers of like, what's the first science fiction? When did it start? Does it start in like the Middle Ages with the, you know, um, astronomy and dreams mm. of, of what might be happening in other planets? Or does it start with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein? Or does it start in 1926 when Gernsback publishes the first issue of Amazing Stories? And, um, I mean, I think I grow kind of bored of those, those conversations. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and I'm not too bothered if people want to say science fiction or speculative fiction, uh, my own, I'm really interested in sort of science and technology and the ways that they, um, shape and change everyday life. So I myself has a particular interest in the part that leans towards science, but, um, there's all kinds of exciting work going on in horror and fantasy and things like that as well. So I'm not too bothered one way or the other, but for me, like at the core is we don't have to take for granted that reality has to be mm. the way we find it. And particularly I think in, in modernity that we don't have to take for granted the way sort of settler colonial histories, industrialization and capitalism, uh, economic destruction, all these ways of life that we've inherited through these histories, they're not inevitable or necessary. We could rethink gender, we can um, rethink ecology, we can rethink how we interact with other species. And all of that is like really um, personally and politically exciting to me. And so that's why science fiction is such a great genre to, to study these things. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I, I think we, before in our, our prior conversation, we talked a little bit about that kind of path dependence of Western culture, right? And I yeah. feel like that is, it's one of maybe the hardest things to kind of imagine 
as different or imagine what could be different with our path dependence. But I find that such an interesting sort of way of looking at it, right? Because so much of our context is sort of how we got to where we are. Um, Exactly. And I mean, so much, um, even in the sciences themselves, is about kind of forgetting those histories, right? That there's a sort of Western model of, of knowledge and, and progress by which uh, once you sort of learn the better framework, so once we decide that like ether is not a thing and we need a different way to understand physics, for example, mm-hmm. then nobody wants to sort of remember like what were those ether discussions like because they were, they were wrong and you've moved on. Um, and so, uh, there are these ways in which, uh, we're always encouraged to think the way things are, the way they have to be just because of the, the way our knowledge systems work. And science fiction is always about like the, what if, right. Taking another idea of thinking about how things could turn out entirely differently. Absolutely. And just, uh, just for those who might not be familiar with the term path dependence, um, it, uh, let me see if I can do it justice. Basically, it's the idea of kind of we can only uh, sort of act and think from kind of where we are. That's where we're sort of doing it by default. And like the fact that we have developed certain technologies kind of shapes the options that we have at the moment. Uh, so I've, I've seen this. I encountered this uh, kind of like in a, in a corporate context where, where we'll talk about kind of like, OK, well, we've developed these kind of like uh, technologies for doing like maybe inside out uh, tracking and like a VR headset or whatever. And so that allows us then to uh, kind of develop other technologies based on that. Uh, but it does kind of shape our options going forward because maybe we're not going to be, you know, using uh, lasers for tracking or something else like that. Um, and maybe, do you have another way of explaining path dependence or? You know? No, I mean, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense, but that, one of the things to think about in, in the sort of technology example that you talk about, that it's also about the built infrastructure, right? So yeah. just because you have chosen one path doesn't mean it's impossible to choose another, but there's sort of a, a higher threshold of investment and other kinds of change you need to make. And so sometimes it's like the path of least resistance yeah. is to presume that you have to stay on, on uh, whatever branch of the forking road you decided at some point that's deemed to be the sort of point of no return. Yeah. You know, maybe another even better example is, um, you know, we think about, you know, what does it look like to upgrade transportation, right? And in the U.S., everything is so based on the car that, you know, all the innovations around like self-driving cars and stuff like that. And it, it's always made me wonder, you know, what happens if we have kind of uh, developing cities or sort of developing countries where they don't have these road networks and can they sort of like reimagine what transportation looks like without that path dependence of having, you know, gigantic highway networks and having cities designed around roads and all these sorts of things. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that, that example in itself sort of points to the power of science fiction, but also mm-hmm. the the range of kinds of science fiction that one discovers out there or speculative fiction for people who prefer that term. But, uh, you know, once a certain infrastructure is built, uh, there's a lot of sort of friction and other kinds of like, like um, inertia and weighted resistances to changing that. And so sometimes you get a kind of science fiction that would just be, like, well, like, let's pretend it turned out totally differently. Instead of this infrastructure, you have a completely different one. And like, what would that life look like? And what does that teach us about uh, the ways in which we've taken for granted or naturalized certain things in our own infrastructure? Uh, but sometimes more interesting is the science fiction that imagines like, well, how do we get from one 
built environment to another. And I mean, sometimes mm. the way is like apocalypse. You sort of just right. sort of wipe everything out. But It's but an easy narrative like, device, right? Exactly. It's just like, I'd like to start over. So, oh, you know. But I think there's also like a great example um, that was published recently is Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, mm. which is trying to take on these questions of climate change and what that means for our economic and mobility dependence on oil and those kinds of infrastructures. And it's not an easy solution, right? It took us, like, depending on how you want to date its beginning, you know, 500 to 200 years to, to get to this. So it's going to take um, at least a couple of generations to figure out a way to move towards something else. And science fiction, because it can tell these stories that go far beyond an individual human lifespan, uh, is one of the ways that we can start thinking in those more expansive um, temporal terms. Absolutely. I know one of the things that I, I found interesting was I've seen um, this this kind of like dynastic science fiction where they seem to do that, where it's it, like there's always this tricky thing. Like, how do you sort of talk about, you know, hundreds or thousands of years while also making it a human story? And it's been interesting to see sort of how people do that with kind of like uh, family generations and, and things like that. Have you seen like other sort of narrative devices that, that seem to work well for doing that or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's one. And um, with the upcoming film adaptation of Dune, which Dune is one of the the narratives that does that dynastic kind of thing. Um, and Apple TV Plus is going to do an adaptation of Foundation, which which also mm. has new characters in different generations. So so that's one way. But there's also a lot of like cyberpunk or singularity fiction has the idea that lifespans just become much longer oh, yeah. through technology or through mind uploading or things like that. Um, and so I think that's another way or um, like the sort of time distortions of FTL. So you get sort <laughs> right, of like yeah. 200 years past on earth and 25 years past at your FTL speed and stuff like that. So we have a lot of ways of getting around uh, telling human stories with human characters that somehow survive, uh, you know, a thousand years and FTL is faster than light travel for those who aren't uh, as geeky as I am. <laughs> yeah. You get some crazy time dilation with relativity. Yep. Uh, I just read a book where they uh, like they they realized that the alien species had never quite figured out relativity yet, and he had to explain it to them, and blew their mind. And it was kind of fun. Well, and that's also like a clever way to get around. I mean, I know a criticism that non SF people sometimes have about SF is that they don't like reading pages and pages where like physics are explained, or like the infrastructure of some fictional technology is explained, and sometimes that that's not incorporated into the narrative in an organic way, but coming up with like contextual reasons uh, why one character has to explain something to another. Because I mean, you don't find people sort of standing in front of an elevator going like, what is this box we're going to get into and how does it work? You know? So once something is a technology that's part of your world, you don't explain it to one another. So that can yep. be a real challenge for science fiction writers. Totally. Um, maybe, you know, I'm curious a little bit, uh, how, how you got sort of down this journey. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's pretty rare to find a, a professor of science fiction and how did you sort of get interested in speculative and science fiction and how did you kind of like follow that academic path? Yeah. So, uh, I don't come from a really typical pathway. A lot of people I know who work in the field were science fiction, um, fans and readers from their youth and that's, uh, and they, 
you know, it didn't used to really be that um, legitimated an object of study. Mm-hmm. So they would sort of, you know, start their academic careers being medievalists or being romanticists or being whatever um, uh, there were sort of jobs and programs in. And then once they're established, they'd like secret write the book on science fiction. They always secretly wanted to write. Uh, I come from a sort of really different track. And then I just got extremely lucky that um having chosen this for very idiosyncratic reasons, which I'll explain in a moment, it turned out that by the time I was sort of um, in the middle of my career, science fiction became a really central genre for so much that's going on in the humanities these days because the humanities turned towards an interest in like um, literature and science, uh, you know, mediated media technologies and mediation and social media, Mm. climate change, like all these things that science fiction was talking about. And so that's in a way kind of the pathway I came to, but for me, it started out, with a course I did during my MA that was about theories of the body and was asking all these philosophical questions about, you know, is gender natural or culturally learned? And like, is, is, uh, if pleasure is sort of culturally relative, is pain the same or is pain some kind of universal experience of the body? And I completely scrapped the plans I had for the PhD I was planning to write. And I developed this whole new plan around writing about embodiment Uh, And I was told by my advisors that I needed some actual books to talk about since it was a literature (laughs) PhD after all. And it turned out the books where people were asking these questions were science fiction books. And so that was really how I discovered science fiction as a sort of uh, vernacular everyday space in which people are wanting to do the same kind of theoretical work about the nature of reality or the nature of identity or, or uh, mind body relations. That was so fascinating to me that, that this was a fictional genre, always asking those same questions. That's really cool. I, you know, it's funny. I, I oftentimes appreciate, like, I, I think my favorite uh, biology book is written by like a computer scientist turned physicist. Right. And like, it, like I, like I always enjoy when people are sort of coming to a place from a, from a, a different, um, sort of origin or a different perspective, because it really does kind of like, uh, it allows you to kind of question some assumptions that are there and kind of open up that space. And I, I, I feel like it'd be interesting to kind of move in conversation a little bit there. And we'll probably touch on this a couple of times in the conversation, but um, I think one of the things that, that really struck me in our conversation was the kind of the expansive way that you've looked at like what, you know, cause one, one of the real important things about science fiction is what can it show us that can be different about the future, right? And, and it's something that we care a lot about here on the podcast. And, you know, we've looked at, like, we see the obvious examples in like engineering and design, but when you start looking at like, what does it look like for there to be different political systems? What does it look like for there to be different economic systems? And then what sort of people with those domain expertise do you need to help write those stories? Um, and I'm curious if you can either share some like examples that you really like of kind of people coming at it from those different perspectives or like, uh, what areas would you like to see explored that haven't really been explored enough? I mean, I think that that's a complicated question because, uh, there's always like a new, even things that have been well explored, like say, um, you know, the question of like, what happens with two, when two cultures with really different values or really different technologies encounter one another? Mm -hmm. uh, What does that story look like? Like, that's the story of colonialism. And we've seen that in so many kinds of science fiction from the very beginning of the genre. But even when it's this thing that's already been explored, 
there's always a, a new sort of angle or perspective or way of looking at that, that, that one can do. So I don't think there's anything I would say like, Oh, we've already talked about this question enough because I think sure. what we need is new that, that what makes science fiction continually exciting for me is that it's always about like, as soon as knowledge or perspectives are settled, what you're supposed to, what you need to do is disrupt them and be like, well, what if we didn't take that for granted? Um, and so it's everything I've ever decided I wanted to research. Like right now, my research is about sort of economic systems in science uh-huh. fiction. Yeah. Um, and previously I did things around animals. I did things around embodiment. I did things around biotechnology, but any topic I've ever decided I'm interested in, I've always been able to find examples of science fiction that that somebody else is also interested in them, right? So Totally. Yeah, so I don't know if I can point to any gaps, but I think the thing you said about sort of like what people and what domain expertise uh, do we need to bring into the conversation, like that's an important question. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that question is like once we have a certain kind of infrastructure or technology or whatever it is, like what kind of differences in people does that produce is I think a a question science fiction is really good at asking and I'm not at all saying it like predicts the future in fact even when it does imagine like there's tons of science fiction that imagined things that we might say are analogous to the social media that we've we've ended up having Um, but the stories don't sort of anticipate social media from the sense that like the problems we actually have like Right. Russian bots hacking elections. Like I can't think of any science fiction that was about that back in the nineties. Right. Even though it was about sort of like online environments and things like that. So there's yeah. always things that misses, but I think what it's good at doing is, is understanding that if you do introduce a whole different kind of technology that changes the way people conduct their day-to-day life, that's going to produce differences in um, work like life relations or where people live or how their families work, like all kinds of things that if you're approaching it strictly from a design point of view, you're maybe not going to answer, ask those questions because what you're trying to think about is, you know, the near future and like, can we bring this product to market and what will that look like and who will be our customer base? Whereas science fiction is much more like, and then once we fast forward 50 years and this is just normal part of day to day, what does that look like for social life or something like that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, touching on, you're talking about currently looking at uh, sort of uh, speculative economics. I feel like that's both a, a fa- I love to sort of ask you more about that. And then also just like, it's interesting because it, it felt like I didn't really see a lot of science fiction about like cryptocurrency before that came out. I saw science fiction about kind of like DAOs, like the ter- distributed autonomous organizations, uh, that can kind of like run on Ethereum, but I'm curious, did you have, have, did you see any sort of lead up thinking about that or how those digital currencies might affect things? I mean, not strictly as digital currencies in the way the conversation is now. And so mm-hmm. now that the that there is blockchain, there is science fiction that's about blockchain, and that that because it's always responding to the the new kinds of uh, technologies and scientific infrastructures. But there's certainly all kinds of science fiction that predates. Um, blockchain that thinks about what if we had a different kind of system of money, right? So mm. so uh, I think of like some of Philip K. Dick's works where he does basically imagine sort of pay-as-you-go infrastructures. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of you know, people just sort of have 
some kind of like uh, online digital monitoring of like what their current balance is. And, right. and like, like in his novel, Ubik, for example, there's this like really hilarious scene where uh, his sort of always down and out protagonist can't get his, can't get his own front door to open for him because he's like <laughs> right. out of currency. So, I mean, that's not exactly like responding to the actual like cryptocurrency situation, but it is sort of, understanding that the infrastructure that creates the uh, social technology that is money uh, and how that works produces sort of uh, certain ways of living. Right. And if, and it's not like you sort of buy something once it's like every morning you got to get your coffee maker to like agree to like make another cup of coffee for you because you still have enough liquidity to, to make that happen and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. And it just, you know, it, I think the reason why I keep poking at this is it just feels like with all these big problems in the world, you know, we take even just take, uh, you know, climate change as an example. Um, it feels like you have in order to solve these problems, you really have to start like poking at and reimagining some of the biggest systems that we have. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of capitalism in like a lot of ways. But, <laughs> you know, we look at it, we're like, OK, I like unless we like patch it, unless we get this up to like capitalism, like 1.2 or something like that, it doesn't seem like we're going to solve some of these big problems. And so like that's where that, that kind of like impetus for like, let's start thinking about some new economic systems like really starts coming into play. Yeah. And I mean, one of the ways you might um, frame that question, if you're sort of like a fan of capitalism, but realize it can't, uh, certain things can't happen within capitalism as we currently understand it. I'm probably less a fan of capitalism, I should say, but that's, I mean, uh, is uh, we are sort of at a moment with neoliberalism where we assume that capitalism and its sort of ways of thinking and organizing and measuring value can solve all problems. Right. And like, so maybe we have to be like, well, even if we're fans of capitalism and we think like, say, capitalism can solve the problem of labor, can it solve the problem of climate change? Or to go back to our conversation about sort of uh, mobility and infrastructure in a sort of uh, short term for profit, need to show profit every quarter um, framework, you can't really do the massive overhaul you need to switch from a sort of individual car-based petroleum infrastructure to massive public transit. But perhaps you could imagine something where that outside the for-profit model, that change bit is made, and then you can imagine a new for-profit model in the sort of aftermath of the change or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know another system, you know, we thought like, like economics is a big one, but also like governance seems like a really big one. I know I've seen, um, uh, uh, who is it? Um, uh, Neil Stevenson has this in a few of his novels where he has these like franchise states, right? Where you have like the greater franchise of Hong Kong, where you can just kind of like declare that your <laughs> area yes. is Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And I mean, imagining ways, I mean, I know some of the conversations around blockchain or around, could we imagine, um, an actual participatory democracy instead of a representative democracy and mm-hmm. could blockchain enable that. And the Stevenson's franchise states in the diamond age are sort of uh, um, imagining moving towards that model. Like that you could, instead of being uh, left with the political choices of where you're born, you can decide what political entity that you want to affiliate yourself with. Um, I would highly recommend um Malka Older's Centennial Cycle, 
which does deal with the idea of um, elections being sort of global and distributed in that way. So instead of like problems like gerrymandering or, you know, different countries having really um, uh, non-overlapping political parties so that so that we can't get any kind of global consensus around things. She goes down to like really, really sort of tiny units where where the votes count across the globe to figure out these political problems. But then she also highlights that in that kind of situation, you need um, like in public information. So she has information with a capital I as a kind of agency um, so that those those questions of like, well, if everyone's going to be able to vote on everything and we're going to collectively figure out how to deal globally with global situ- um, things like um, climate change, how is it that you ensure people understand what they're voting for or the consequences that they're voting for so that um, information is as much a part of democracy as uh, how the vote is distributed? That's fascinating. Um, are you know? It's I, I'm sure we could just spend the entire episode getting recommendations. But are there any other sort of <laughs> cool examples we've seen of like alternative governance? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the sort of classic example is uh, Ursula Le Guin's "The Dispossessed," mm. which uh, has to do with a anarchist society versus a sort of uh, capitalist, uh, uh, more authoritarian society, and explores the kind of um, what's possible and what's not possible in each of the models. Cause she has a character who starts out at one and moves to the other. So that's sort of like the, um, most referred to novel, I would guess that about, uh, questions of, of governance. And there's also, I mean, um, Dune is in some ways, I mentioned Dune before, cause the movie's coming out, uh, Dune's about sort of political governance being bound up with economic governance. So it's about control of the resources and how um, that plays out and how the political systems work. Or you have a lot of feminist novels that imagine um, more collectivist ways of organizing. Um, Carrie Vaughn has a novel called Bannerless um, that imagines a sort of uh, uh, post-environmental crisis world and it's very like um, small local governance and consensus-based decision-making in the community. So I think that's it's something that science fiction is returning to frequently from a wide range of perspectives. Absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll give a, a personal plug for, uh, it's hard to say too much without spoiling it, but the sequel to the book Damon, uh, Freedom, uh, TM Freedom Trademark. Yes, like has yes. some really interesting things there too. Yeah, and this is I'm just sticking with print examples, but I think for um, well, it's based on novels actually, but the the television series The Expanse, um, mm, yep. which is based on the J. A. Corey novels, I think it's got really really interesting ideas about how governance would work um, sort of across the solar system and different constituencies that have that are sometimes aligned and sometimes have really competing priorities I think it tells some really complicated stories along those lines very cool um, well one of the yeah, actually okay so this this is a topic that uh, we don't need to dive into too much but I thought it was kind of funny because uh, it felt like one of these just, um, you know, heat of the moment, uh, you know, public debates. And then when I read your book, I was looking at it as like, oh, wow, this has been going on since the very beginning, which is um, there's this whole uh, sad puppies thing that happens uh. <laughs> <laughs> where um, and, and and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, steel manning their position a little bit too much. But it seemed like there was kind of a, a collection of folks who were getting a little bit irritated at um some of the awards going to what they felt were 
the sort of like woker titles that were kind of focused on like politics or other sorts of things where they just wanted like, where's my hard science fiction with aliens and spaceships? Uh, and they're, uh, they were basically doing this protest vote where they were upvoting these absolutely ridiculous books that had no place being on the, uh, the awards to kind of protest it. Is, is that like a fair analysis? I guess they were kind of alt-right trolls to a certain extent as well. Um, but it I seems like, it seems like this tension has been kind of there since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, this, well, there's this sort of tension that's been there since the beginning. So I assume in terms of how this comes up in the book, uh, and honestly, I can't remember how much I go into detail about this particular history in this book. I have a, a different book that is uh, that I use for teaching science fiction. I wrote as a classroom book, um, which is called Science Fiction, A Guide for the Perplexed. Um, <laughs> nice. And well, the, it's in a series that they have a number of guides to the perplexed of various things. And I know I'm going into it in that book, so I can't remember if I do in the one for MIT or not. But from the sort of beginning of organized fandom, at the very least, there's always been a sort of group of people who are science fiction is about science and understanding science and how science can change the world. And I mean, some of them were left wing and some of them were right wing. But there was this sort of sense that like what it at its core had to be about was using science to change the world. But also from the beginning, there's been a group of people who are um, science fiction is about how society is organized and technology is a part of it. But it's all, also always this social thing. And so it's also about our gender arrangements or our structures of governance or um, uh, how uh, race and systemic uh, discrimination or um, homophobia and systemic discrimination work in our societies. So there's always kind of been those two poles of people who are more, we should be asking about social problems and we should be focusing on science. But there's both left and right wing iterations in both of those polls. And then that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And because they're polls, I mean, most people are actually in the center. Right. So I'd point to someone again, like Kim Stanley Robinson, who has a lot of hard science in his works, but is very much about environmentalism all the time, um, which might be viewed as a woker kind of thing. But the puppies themselves, I mean, Certainly they were racist. Uh, yeah, I think there's no yeah. question they were not racist. Uh, and as well, well as- these things are tough, right? Because like you definitely had racists there and then you like, like all these movements are difficult, right? Cause they're, they're heterogeneous collections of people. <laughs> well, it's true enough. I mean the ones, so that's fair enough to yep. say is that, uh, and I see we're being asked by the producer to give a bit more background on what the puppies are. And I know being called puppies is probably super confusing to a lot of people. So <laughs> Uh, where the title comes from is that it was a critique of too much uh, quote unquote social justice warrior kind of ethos in the field and a, um, a group of people who felt a group of men, I think might be fair to say, but I've not done the research to verify that, um, who felt that there was too much of this like uh, sloppy liberal sentimentality in their view that was wrecking science fiction. And so uh, it was like the people who cry over watching like Humane Society or ASPCA ads and see the sad puppies in cages. Um, oh, is that where it was? That's where their title comes from. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because it felt like, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, Okay, like, you know, I I definitely don't agree with you on a lot of things, but I also like it just felt like there needs to be like 
I don't know, multiple different awards or something like, okay, have your hard science fiction awards, you know, maybe have, you know, best conservative science fiction of the year award. But well, I, I don't, there, yeah. there is a libertarian award, which is, there, is not yeah. a science fiction award, but yeah. often goes to science fiction. So, um, I That's mean, that does exist. But I also think, I mean, I do understand that some of this was framed around it's supposed to be hard science fiction with no politics. But I just think that's a completely false position because mm -hmm. there is a politics to the sort of uh, space adventures that um, that they were sort of presenting as being apolitical. In fact, there is a politics to so that. It's just a different politics than, than um, liberal social justice politics. And as I say, there's lots of... Uh, quote unquote, woke science fiction <laughs> that has a uh, really solid science behind it too. So I think that's fair. There, yeah. It's not it's that way of framing the um, dichotomy between yeah. um, hard and not hard misrepresents the field. But I mean, ever there's polls, there are extremes you can find where there's like very little engagement with science. And there, so, I mean, it, it's, it's always oversimplifies to try to, pull these things down to binaries. But the thing that I think is most important to say in this conversation is that the claim that you're just writing stories and not doing politics is just a way of disguising your politics because they're the normal unquestioned politics. So you present, you pretend they're just the way things are. But to me, what's exciting about science fiction is it's always asking questions about the way mm. things are and if they have to be that way. Right. So there's always yeah. the politics. It's just sometimes people are more explicit and overt about that. And sometimes they, they say it's not politics, but what it means is it's like reproducing dominant politics. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I appreciate the way that you're framing that where it's, um, uh, it's, you know, maybe less of a battle, like thinking of it as a linear scale on, it's just like the hard sci-fi versus the soft sci-fi or whatever, isn't necessarily the right way to look on it and kind of like expanding the dimensionality there where, Maybe, maybe you're adding that to the dimensionality of left or right, or you're adding that to like the multidimensionality of what actual political considerations there are. Uh, and that, that seems to make that debate make more sense. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there's, it's a constellation of things that, that in fact, um, the controversy itself is a kind of politics, right? Where people are trying to be like, I want to frame it this way and say it's about hard or soft, or mm -hmm. right. I want to frame it this way and say it's about, you know, socialism or, or, uh, uh, libertarianism, like all of those are political moves too. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm curious just to, to touch a little bit on, you were talking about sort of there being a baked in politics to the kind of, uh, like spacefaring science fiction. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, there's a great book by, by my colleague, John reader called colonialism and the emergence of science fiction, which is, a um, a history of science fiction and an analysis. I mean, it's not a full history, but it's about sort of how science fiction arose and how um, the the fact that European societies had these um, uh, colonial empires sort of informed some of the stories that were being told in the late 19th century and how the, the sort of uh, assumptions that were shaping those colonial societies um, played out in some early science fiction and some of the sort of uh, uh, tropes and icons that became dominant in science fiction. So that's what his book is about. And so when I say that there's a kind of default politics, if you sort of assume uh, 
you know, territory is there for the taking of it. And if you have superior technology, you're allowed to sort of colonize the planets as you find them. And, you know, if you're, uh, your species is biologically superior to the species that you find on the planets that again, like you're sort of entitled to, to make the planet over like terraform it, things like that. So all of those things are political choices too, right. Which have sort of baked in assumptions about what kind of life forms are superior or who um, territory belongs to, or even that territory is a thing that can belong to someone, right? And there's a lot of great recent space opera that's precisely about like critically examining um, some of those assumptions. Um, So like Sue Burke has um, her semiosis series, which is... Oh, yeah, that's really good. Those are good, yeah. Yeah, and I think like that whole... So if you know those books, you know that when the um, characters are on the planet they discover the the um, plant life forms have an intelligence and have an ability to communicate and they have to yeah. negotiate with them rather than just sort of displace them to grow the kind of crops they want and stuff like that. Totally. Or um, uh, Arcadi Martin, or maybe it's Martin Arcadi. Martin Arcadi, I think, uh, has the Tex Colon series, which really uh, talks about the sort of role of, of culture and and language and everyone's being forced to sort of speak in the colonizers colonizers language and what that does to your, um, your uh, ways of conceiving yourself and the kind of artistic practices you can create. Um, so I think there's, uh, it is Arcady Martin. Thank you, Nick, um, for correcting me there. But I think like this remains a part of science fiction and some works are like asking questions about it, you know, an oldie, but a goodie is Ian Banks culture series, um, Mm -hmm. which is all about sort of having sentient machines do all the, the um, long-term planning that we're not good enough for, or not, uh, we don't have the capacity to think in those terms and non-sentient machine doing all the unpleasant labor so that everyone can sort of like, thrive in in these futures where it's sort of asking like well when are we allowed to impose our cultural values on societies whose cultural modes we think of as backward um so i think yeah that these these assumptions are always there and and writers that want to um draw them out into question are asking us to sort of think critically about these histories whereas um, there are, is some kind of space adventure, which is just about like, how do you build a better rocket and go further with it? And then not wanting to ask the more political questions about what do you find when you get there? And are you entitled to it just because you managed to get there and things like that? Interesting. Yeah. And it's, uh, I'm, I, I guess I'm assuming it's, it's satirical. I don't know how serious it is, but Starship Troopers feels like a very, <laughs> uh, on the nose example of these kinds of things, right? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a really interesting example because Heinlein is, uh, I mean, he's a great example of why you need to think more complexly than just in binaries. So I'm not always like the biggest fan of Heinlein myself, um, but one, there are moments where he's left wing and there's moments when he's right wing and he himself changed over his career, right? So, Mm. uh, and then especially the, Paul Verhoeven film, I think, is is like even more satirical than the original novel about these things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or something like Ender's Game. That's another right. like, yeah. beloved one where, yep. like, yeah, they wipe out the bugs, but then there's like two more novels about like what it means to have committed genocide. Yeah. Right? <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. Um, while staying on maybe some slightly controversial territory, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about there is this um, there's this sense in which so you know take like uh, SpaceX going to Mars, right? Yes. Um, there seems to be this tension where I see, and I don't know if I'm going to frame this in a way that you would, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but where you see some people saying like, okay, this is like clearly like through reasoned debate, we have figured out and like through logic that we need to go do this. We need to like go to other planets and, you know, set up settlements. And then I see on the other side, kind of what feels like literary critique of the projects where it's like, okay, well, this is like these other times where people have thought these ideas and this is why they were wrong. Uh, But it feels like there's two different conversations going on where like one is trying to like logic their way through why we should be doing this. And the other is kind of applying that more literary critique lens. Does that ring true at all? I mean, I think you're certainly right that it's that there's a debate. I, I, I undoubtedly would not have phrased it in the binary because I don't think I would say literary critique. It doesn't have any reason, but right. Right. right, And that's, that's kind of intentionally provocative that way. Yes. But But at the same time, I'm not also saying like, like rationality should always be our first priority, but I mean, I think, so two things I would say, or maybe three. So here's, so first I think, this is a really interesting example because one of the things that I find really um, cool and interesting right now is that we have all these things like SpaceX and, and then you end up with like what are essentially like science fiction shows on like the um, national geographic channel that are like half interviews with people working for SpaceX and half like fictional set pieces about the future where we're living on Mars. And so there's this real kind of like science fiction and everyday life thing. So that's one thing. The second thing is um, that, of course, this debate was always there throughout the space race, right? So the project of going to the moon similarly had a lot of people that are like, we must do this and we have to get into space and we have to get there first because otherwise, like the Russians will get there and then they'll have dominance. And, and you know, what will that mean for America's futures and capitalism's futures and things like that? So the um the the argue where and so that was one side of the debate and the other side is like why are we spending all this money going to the moon when you know we have all these problems of like racism and poverty that we're not dealing with in america and so we're like failing to address these like pressing social problems and we're spending all our money on this very um sort of elite project of putting a man on the moon so those same debates have been there throughout the space race and have been there for, I'm sure, um, earlier infrastructure projects too, that I just don't have the knowledge to speak to. Uh, and I'll, as a little aside, I'll say, um, Ron Moore's latest show for all mankind, uh, which mm-hmm. is also an Apple TV show yeah, yeah, does a fantastic job of like reimagining that original space race as if it continued up to the, um, point of thinking about colonizing the moon and colonizing Mars. Uh, so, I mean, I think that in a way, this is nothing new, this critique yeah. of SpaceX. And so then my third maybe, point, oh, oh, go oh ahead, please. Go ahead. I no, guess no, I, was just, gonna, I wanted oh. to offer a little bit of clarification because, you know, it's funny because I, I don't quite know the right terminology to talk about this in, but it's, you know, because it feels like it's maybe through analogy, I can say, so like this happens a lot with kind of like existential risk as well, where it'll be like, okay, we're worried about uh, artificial general intelligence and this thing is going to, you know, end the world and it's either going to create heaven or hell. And you have some like one side where it's like, okay, this is what we like have figured out just by thinking about it really hard. 
And then the other side is kind of like the outside view where it's like, okay, well, people have like had apocalyptic, you know, stories about the world since the beginning. This is just one more apocalyptic story, right? Uh, and maybe that's a better way of kind of putting this where it's like the kind of like inside view versus the outside view on these sorts of things or like trying to like tease apart what the biases are by sort of looking at it as like a literary or sort of cultural lens. Maybe, maybe that makes more sense. Yeah, I mean... I think the inside-outside view, and I really liked what you had to say about tease it apart to get at what the biases are, Mm -hmm. because I think, like, that's where science fiction thrives, right? Mm -hmm. So the point I was initially going to make about the original space race, so this is nothing new, which is not to say, like, people have always thought apocalypse and the world's gone on, so let's not worry about it. Like, that's not my point at all. But what I'm wanting to say is that one side of that debate that sort of pushed us to go to the moon, um, it was also about Cold War politics at the time, right? So there's this larger perspective about going to the moon had a symbolic value for like the superiority of American ways of life and perhaps had a like military strategic value or at the very least people thought it would, whether it did or not, is not for me to say. And so the inside and outside... Like what I find interesting about that way of framing it is because it's about where you draw those frames, right? So it's like if you put a sort of frame around, we need more uh, metals and we can find metals on asteroids, therefore we must go to Mars. Then Mm -hmm. there's an inside-outside view where like if you're totally inside that conversation, then probably it makes absolute sense to go to Mars. Um, But if you draw the box around like, uh, you know, climate change is a global catastrophe and we need to do something about that. Otherwise, like human life as we know it cannot continue. There are some people who then use that as a, so we have to think about colonizing Mars, which I do not find a very compelling argument because if we're like jeopardizing our lives through our lifestyle on a planet we evolved on, I find it really hard to imagine we'll do better on a planet where everything has to be artificially created. But other people would say, like, this is why instead of spending money on going to Mars, we should be spending money on finding ways to, like, mitigate climate change and reinvent ways of life on Earth because they're drawing a different box and they have insider knowledge of a different way of framing the problem than the problem that's the more SpaceX way of framing the problem, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, as, a, as like a uh, maybe a brief aside, I heard somebody propose once, you know, what would it look like if just for four years, NASA just purely dropped almost everything they were doing and just focused on global warming. And as much as I love space exploration and getting boots on another planet, like, uh, I would love if somebody wrote even a short science fiction story about what that might look like. Because that just sounds like <laughs> a fascinating idea. Yeah. And I mean, I understand, like, I too, love uh, the idea of going to space if like I could afford it I would like 100% buy one of the tickets to be able to go to space I think it's like like a phenomenal that we put a man on the moon and returned him there from because that's really the key part right is bringing the person back from the moon and we did it with like you know technology that like you know my microwave is probably more advanced (laughs) than, than the computers at the time so I do have a sort of sense of sublime awe around those things I share, but I also don't know that going to Mars is the most pressing problem that we have right now, as exciting as the idea of going to Mars is. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, this is where the, that debate gets uh, interesting to me is that I feel like there is a, uh, so climate change, huge, massive problem. 
in the world. Uh, I honestly don't know if it's the biggest one. Like, I think there's other gigantic ones like artificial general intelligence, uh, you know, biosecurity, all these kinds of things. And I feel like the impetus for us to start uh, having other rocks or places that we're living on in some ways collapses down to how important do you think all these different risks are that we face? Um, because while you might not, um, you might not solve some of the, you might not solve all of the problems by moving to another planet. You might solve like a couple of like the really big ones. And it depends on how big of a priority you're putting on them or how, how likely you think they are. Yeah. I mean, I think the existential risk is a, is a useful way to think about this because, um, because science fiction is often, as I said before, interested in these really long-term type timescales and it's interested in sort of humans as a species, like the future of humanity, not just the future of, of uh, individual countries or individual right. families, yeah. as, as might be the case in more realist fiction sometimes. So, I mean, I think that is interesting, but like take the example of AGI, for example, um, yeah. which I also find really interesting. To me, this sort of point I was trying to make about framing seems really useful to that as well, because I do know there's all this like, you know, AGI and what's going to happen and there's going to be no more jobs and this and that and the other. Uh, and from one point of view, like as the sort of science fiction nerd in me finds the idea of um, AGI super exciting, right? To be able to like, um, uh, and uh, I'm being reminded to clarify. So AGI is artificial general intelligence as in, uh, and really from my point of view, what we now call AGI is what science fiction um, has long just called yeah. AI is in an artificial intelligence that can do anything. It can switch to different kinds of tasks because it actually can is responsive and, and can think if we want to call it that. Whereas we have a lot of things now where we say this is AI enabled but that definition of AI is not science fiction's definition of AI, right? It, what it means is it's got like algorithmic um, ways of processing information that it can do faster than humans can, but it can't like, it's not like the Star Trek computer where you can say like computer correlate all this data and then like, you know, extrapolate with me about possibilities about how we might solve this problem in the way that it's like a full blown intelligence. Um, so from my, the science fiction nerd in me thinks AGI is like super exciting and I could like have a computer that, um, is like a sort of companion and expanding the world for me or doing all kinds of mundane tasks so I can devote myself to doing other ones and things like that. But within the sort of built environment infrastructure we live in, AGI will be a way for corporations that own it to gain more market share and more control and have more data and surveil your lives more. And so it's not really about whether AGI is dangerous or not, but it's about the larger systems of economic governance in which AGI is deployed and to what ends, which is why I, again, I would promote science fiction as always wanting to think about those like larger set of connections, right? So it's not just, is it cool or not that, that a machine could be this intelligent, but like what kind of uh, entity has created this machine and what kind of ends does it deploy it towards and what's the relationship between this machine and um, the sort of everyday citizen who is not in an elite position within the corporate structure that's created this machine and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I have to agree and then disagree because I, I agree that it is very important for us to look at what does it look like if we have some of these um, artificial general intelligence systems being controlled by humans to different ends. 
And it is possible that that conversation gets lost. But I feel like it's also just absolutely critical to look at what happens when these things are made in general from a theoretical perspective, what happens if they have their own ends. And, you know, even if, even if it is extrapolating some sort of like capitalist nightmare, like we have to consider the paperclip, you know, scenario where it just tries to, (laughs) you know, go off the cliff, making things that are complete over extrapolations of whatever uh, utility function happens to have. Right. So I think you do have to look at them as risks in themselves. And then I think I agree with you that you also have to look at them as an extension of, of actors in the world. Well, and I think, I mean, from my point of view and maybe this just, um, is from the fact that I come from the science fiction side of things rather than from the computer science side of things. But if they really were um, intelligences, of course they would have their own priorities and ends, right? Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that those priorities and ends would be antithetical to us um, because we have a lot of, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of great stories about like Skynet or whatever, but that's not the only kind of story you could tell. And it's not the only kind of, reality that could materialize out of um, this technology truly achieving intelligence if it does. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's one of these things where it's, um, I think there's lots of stories you can tell. And I also feel like there is important theoretical math (laughs) to basically be done on this. Like you'll see very useful theories around like, what does it look like if you're trying to optimize utility function and there are resources in the world, like you just maximize the amount of resources that you've gotten in order to, you know, right. So you can, you can find some sort of convergent solutions that lead to disaster, but there is a whole art to analyzing the assumptions that went into that that I feel like is still an ongoing exploration. Exactly. Like including is efficiency always the most ethical way to think about how one engages resources? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and programming and ethics is always a tricky one, but yeah, <laughs> hopefully we'll, we'll get in that direction. Um, awesome. Awesome. All right. So, you know, one of the things that I'd love to talk about in terms of kind of existential risk and preventing some of these big problems in the world or sort of um, like th- there is a sense in which the next century seems like a scary one. Like we have these technologies that can, um, you know, could fundamentally destroy the world or, or reshape it for the worse, you know, whether that's, you know, nuclear weapons or biotechnology or AGI or any of these sorts of things. And, um I, I feel like there's this impetus, and I'm curious to sort of hear your thoughts on this, for this kind of like near-term science fiction that actually shows how we get past these big issues. Uh, and it seems like it's a particularly difficult type of science fiction to write because of how scary these things are that are coming up for us. Uh, have you seen sort of uh, good examples of people describing kind of like how we get through these big disasters or different kind of techniques that you've seen that work well for this? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that there is um, a sort of strong interest in near future science fiction right now. Uh, But there has been in other times, too. And um, I don't disagree that these um, challenges that the next century faces are are significant and difficult ones. Uh, In fact, I in some ways, I'm kind of surprised to hear myself going to say what I'm about to say, because I'm like, known for my pessimism and I'm generally a pessimist, (laughs) but I do think it's also worth remembering that um, these seem perhaps more extreme to us than the the crises faced by earlier generations, just because we're the ones facing them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I think, I know there's been like all this interest in the black death recently because of COVID and we're like, what is it like to go through a pandemic? And I mean, like in many places, a third or half of the people died. Like, like I'm 
quite certain that for those people, that must have felt like the end of the world. And it certainly was the end of their world, right? Because in the aftermath of the Black Death, like labor arrangements were massively restructured because of like population changes. And that led to like um, new ways of doing agriculture and new technologies and like on and on, like you could draw the connections to industrialism and various things. So, I mean, a way of life um, that existed beforehand was not there after. And it was like an extremely difficult transition to live through, I'm certain. And I think we do have a few decades of extremely difficult transition to live through coming up. Um, perhaps what's different now is like the the way in which the various ways we've already changed our world, right? Like colonialism has changed our world, um, redistributing populations and, and um, human and otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that's tied in with climate change and how it's changed our world. So the sort of urgency for the near term right now might be because these things um, continue to interact regularly on a global basis, because we're also like jetting around the world or some of us are and things like that means that if we don't solve certain problems quite soon, uh, it won't be us who's guiding how this change happens. It'll be like, you know, the way um, ocean currents are interacting with storm systems or interacting with agricultural cycles and things like that. So that's, I think, driving the sense that we need to do this more quickly right now than perhaps people have felt before. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny. I like it because it seems like such a hard problem. It's always interesting to me when I see examples. I feel like, um, have, you, have you encountered a Blue Remembered Earth? Yeah, series. I don't know that. Blue Alistair Remembered Reynolds. Yeah. Afrofuturism. Very good stuff. Uh, but, uh, the it's set, I think maybe 200 years in the future. And sort of one of the ways that they got around all this was just like the most authoritarian solution you could possibly imagine, which is called like the mechanism. And everybody has one of these little things in their head. And if they ever do anything violent, if like, if they're about to do something violent or like antisocial, it just like tases them. (laughs) And and you're like, okay, yeah, maybe that would work, but I don't know if I want that, you know? Um, Well, I mean, I already mentioned this example before, um, but the best one I can think of is Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, mm. which just came out this year. And in part, why I think it's such a good example, well, two reasons. One is that he does understand this is a problem that you need to approach from like multiple angles, right? So there's like engineering technology solutions, but you also have to think about political solutions. And right. you also have to think about, um, you know, people's buy-in everyday life um, changes, like all these things have to work synergistically to actually produce change because all the great engineering in the world is not going to um, fix anything if people continue to act in counterintuitive ways to it or something like that. But also he understands that it's, um, it's not going to be this like, oh, we could just do this and then we'll like, that'll fix everything. It's like, no, like there's going to be some real difficult, painful things to live through. And some things are going to take like generations to fix, but we have to sort of like turn the big ocean liner with all this like inertia going one direction towards climate disaster. We have to start the process of turning it so that we don't hit that, um, iceberg that's no longer there because it melted um totally yeah (laughs) so yeah yeah. and it takes time right so there are going to be things that go disastrously horribly wrong and it's just too late to fix some of them but we can't afford nihilism Um, as our response to that yeah absolutely what it sounds it's still on my reading list i haven't gotten to it yet but 
uh, it sounds like a kind of great counterexample to this, which is that um, it sounds like it's covering a lot of different bases where oftentimes uh, science fiction will kind of do this thing where it's like, okay, there's this one thing and then that cascades and makes all these changes. And oftentimes I feel like that makes absolutely fantastic science fiction. But I think that it is an example of how you have to be a little bit careful about reasoning from science fiction because there are these kind of like convenient narrative devices that don't match the real world, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so science fiction is about asking questions as much as proposing solutions, right? Like I was involved in a workshop recently that was about um, automation in the future of work. Uh-huh. And people, some people, and it was, it was a interdisciplinary workshop. So there were like um, SF people there, but there were also like computer scientists there and there were economists there and all these um, people that are like, this is a problem. We have to think about it. And I was sort of surprised as a science fiction person in this group to find some people were like, you know, well, there's always science fiction stories about this, but none of them have come up with the solution for us. And huh. I was sort of like, like, well, that's not really science fiction's job, right? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, its job is to illuminate dimensions like like to understand the problem in these sort of you know like there's trajectories embedded in the way we do things now that um if you change like one thing so you have like you know the the real world is your control and then the science fiction is your experiment where you change one variable it helps a better illuminate the situation that we're in but those kind of things where you like invent these plot devices to be like well what if you know we discovered a different boiling point for water or I don't even know what, sure, but sure, what sure. is something yeah. that we could never possibly do. Right. Like, it, and sort of like logically extrapolating and working through that isn't going to give you the solution to what do we do in the world that works differently, but it is going to offer additional information about the importance of that one variable that's helpful to you in thinking about solutions. Right. Totally. Yeah. And this, this came up for us um, at my last startup, Altspace, you know, because we're doing this social virtual reality stuff. And we realized that um, everybody, a lot of people in the space were basing a lot of their business decisions on the science fiction that had came out. Uh, and there is this one kind of very clear bias in the science fiction, which is that in all these worlds about VR, there is the one VR platform, right? The one ah. contiguous open world, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it makes for a great story and you have all your stuff set there and it makes for all these things that like connect back to human experience. But like if you have that assumption, then you might not be making the right product and business decisions because maybe everybody needs their own instance of the world or maybe, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of them and they need to be interconnected. Right. Yeah. And so. actually, that's uh, that's really interesting because you brought up Neil Stevenson before. So if you look at um, the difference between like the metaverse in snow crash which mm-hmm. i know has been really influential on a lot of actual um platforms that were developed versus the um franchises in the diamond age oh yeah that already you see his imagination shifting from there's going to be like one metaverse that everyone's in this platform to no people are going to be wanting their sort of franchise realities um that are catered um to their own sort of particular tastes and stuff like that so that's interesting totally and i think you know another place where we see that a little bit too is um we in the beginning of the podcast we were talking about the concept of utopias a lot right and there's this sense in which a lot of old school utopias are this, uh, maybe still, but like a lot of the old school utopias are like, this is like the shining city on the hill. This is the one way everybody's <laughs> living exactly the same with like the same clothing and everything, right? And it's like, well, 
do we want that? Right? Like, what does a more diverse utopia look like? What is a more interesting, you know, utopia look like? Exactly. And I mean, um, I could go on and on and about, about this, so I won't, but I'll just say that um, there's like a really developed conversation in utopian studies about instead of thinking of utopia as the thing, right? Like we figured it out. These are the rules. If everybody follows them, then we've got the perfect society uh-huh. that what you actually need is the process. Mm, you yeah. need a way of like, we've always got to be improving our society to continue to be more inclusive or more just or whatever it is. And so like, what does that look like as a, as an impetus towards constantly questioning what's static as opposed to like figuring out the thing and then, and then building it in a static way, because of course those completely turn into dystopias for some, right? Yeah. That's really interesting. I like that as the process. Uh, yeah. I, was it, is this the appropriate term? I think you were talking about critical utopia or critical utopia. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's um, critical utopia is a term that Tom Moylan, who's another critic came up with to talk about this. Um, there's also critical dystopia is a term that gets used, nice. but yeah, that a critical utopia he argues is one that it's, you know, trying to be the good society, but it's also continually critiquing itself to mm-hmm. always be aware of, of its own limitations. Um, and there's a lot of great novels, some of the ones he talks about in his book, um, a lot from the 60s and 70s, and especially coming out of like feminist writers or queer writers, or now we see writers of color doing similar kind of work. Um, uh, and in fact, one of the great examples uh, was a writer of color who's also a queer writer, Samuel Delaney. But really showing how what some people imagine as utopian for them is actually really oppressive to people <laughs> who have different kinds of uh, um, ways of being in the world that aren't sure. the, like normative ways, right? That's really interesting. Yeah, and figuring out where those limits are, right? Because of course, if like what your utopia is, is you like to like, you know, torture people or something right. like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to have... Then you have to apply, like, yeah, reasonable, and then oh my god, it goes, <laughs> it gets pretty yeah. complicated from there. Yeah. Well, if, if this was easy, we would have probably figured it out already, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <So. laughs> well, what is the what? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what critical critical dystopia means in that sense? Uh, I know I, I saw the little bit of you're writing about like. Um, like I've been kind of boohooing all these dystopias that have been coming out. It seems like all like the teen novels are about dystopias, but I feel like you had like a little bit more of a positive thinking about it. And yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the dystopia that's just basically like, um, we're on a bad path and it's going to get worse and this is what it's going to look like. Um, and I mean, we could say that they're sort of warning us not to go there so that there's a, a positive function in the sense. So if you think of like a lot of the, um, nuclear apocalypse dystopias that that were being published in the 1950s it was sort Mm -hmm. of we invented this new thing it's really existentially scary because it could end like all life on earth and so like we need to like really get on top of like thinking about this thing and how horrible that could could turn out to be that is supposed to prompt people to want to make more critical choices um, but there's also a kind of critical dystopia and I, and I'm not super on top of all the YA stuff cause it's just, there's so much of it. I just sure, don't have time yeah, to yeah. read it all. But I, the stuff that I do know, I would say falls within this kind of framework because it is okay. It's given that it's a dystopian world, but what these books tend to be about is 
young protagonists um, questioning the dystopian world they find themselves in and um, working to sort of rebel against the world that their parents' generation or their ancestors made and figure out a different pathway forward, right? So that there's this sort of utopian core at the heart of the dystopia because it illuminates, uh, dystopia is used to illuminate everything that's wrong with sort of contemporary reality by analogy, but also show like fresh thinking from a young generation is going to put us on a different pathway. Um, so while it's that's not YA, um, uh, there's a book called An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon. That's a, a um, multi-generational uh, spaceship journey kind of narrative. And I would Got put it, it in yep. that category. Like the world in the spaceship is this very dystopian world. And a lot of the novel is about like how that dystopia works and like who it oppresses and what histories that, that evokes. But at the end of the novel, it's about positioning the characters to build something different because of um, their dissatisfaction with that world and how it has oppressed them. I like that. Yeah. That's um, you know, it's, it's definitely not like the road, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, the road yeah. is definitely yeah. like, well, I mean, some people, it depends how you interpret the end of the road. Cause some people are, there's all that stuff about the flame and you have to keep the flame alive and the little boy is going to mm. live even if the father dies. But I personally find like, there's at least a 50 50, if not like 80 20 chance that people are going to eat that little boy rather than raise him to yeah, adulthood. Oh no. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. But I do like that because uh, cause that gives a little bit of a different frame on those, um, uh, I don't know, what is it like, Divergent? And I haven't seen a bunch of those novels, yeah, 100, yeah. 100 Games, right? Where it is that, because um, there's a little bit of a reality to that young folks are growing up with uh, a bunch of very, very big, scary issues where it feels like the world's going downhill to them and stuff like that. And so having those stories of uh, rebellion and kind of overcoming and, and changing things seems like good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, it's, it's people always say how unrealistic science fiction is or people who don't like it. But I mean, it's, well, we don't have, you know, Hunger Games fighting in the arena. <laughs> we definitely do have a young generation that has to inherit uh generational inequality due to systemic racism uh looming climate crisis uh an economy that runs on indebtedness like all these things that their parents have saddled them with as uh and i don't mean their parents personally i mean the generation of their parents of which i'm a part uh but the choices we've collectively made up to this point does leave the younger generations with extremely challenging burdens to shoulder as they come into adulthood yeah and and you know it's one of these things where it's both the reality and it's also the ongoing kind of oppressive narrative right so yes yes yeah yeah. well i mean at the end of the day you also want to tell a good story right because uh and to me that's again one of the like um, benefits, exciting things about science fiction, like say some of the work I'm doing on economics and science fiction right now. Um, there's a you know subset of people who are going to sit down and read economic treatises or like spreadsheets and proposals, but there's a lot more people that are going to sit down and read a great novel that also works some of these ideas into its plot line, right? Yeah. And so you're able to draw people's attention to things in a way that they are willingly going to consume it rather than being like, you know, everyone should sit down and learn the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was interesting because there was a period of time where I kind of like uh, tossed away fiction. I was like, okay, like nonfiction is the only important thing. Like, you know, let me just like focus on like, like serious stuff. 
And then um, I think that's a great example of kind of how, you know, like narrative sticks with you. It's more attractive. It's easier to read. Uh, but also for me, I just realized how valuable the fact that I could say the words, the matrix, and you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yes. And I mean, in fiction is also um, affective, right? It's about mm. how it affects people in ways that you feel as well as think about. And that sometimes brings the stakes more clear to people. Um, if yeah. you're, uh, I mean, I too read a lot of nonfiction and I'm not meaning to diss nonfiction in any way, but there's something really different from reading a complicated analysis about say biotechnology, which is what I've just been um, finished writing a book about versus like having a story that then has to do with like what that means in terms of, uh, you know, a child that ends up with five parents because of uh, various ways that like IVF and, and genetic manipulation um, produce a different sort of uh, yeah. reproductive possibility. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious to talk a little bit about um, there's this, uh, I guess this term like innovation studies, or you see these kind of like think tanks or companies that are kind of utilizing science fiction to help companies and organizations uh, like plan for the future. And uh, I, I'm curious to kind of hear what you think about that, like how that field is developing and also maybe some of the limitations. I, I saw some interesting thoughts on like how it seems to be maintaining uh, power structures rather than questioning them and things like that. Yeah. So there's like a lot of, um, so there, there are innovation studies kinds of programs, but there's also like um, scenario mapping or like role-playing kind of exercises that, that companies can do sometimes. Um, and sometimes they do, I mean, it's great work for science fiction writers, right? They get hired to like figure yep. out scenarios and be like, you know, what would happen if like this kind of climate change disaster happened? And then like this kind of like, population of refugees was produced and like what are the scenarios of how that could play out and then like the u.s military could decide um, how it's going to like defend u.s borders against them or something like that so when this sort of scenario mapping is used to like um think through uh all these contingent possibilities in order to sort of like preventatively um guard against uh what are the changes that they might imply then i think that that's a kind of um reinforcing the existing power structures mode so it's using science fictional thinking but it's all about like minimizing the change that could happen uh and there's certainly there there are kinds of science fiction that would would share in those kinds of um values but to me because of the values i have the science fiction that I find more interesting and exciting um, and the change I believe we need in the world is the one that thinks through those possibilities and then tries to think about, okay, so uh, this thing could disrupt our current ways of living. So instead of thinking about like, how can we get back to that as quickly as possible? How can we think about like using that as a way to reinvent something about our ways of living? So even think about COVID. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, we need to get back to normal, back to normal, back to normal. And I don't mean to be completely down on back to normal. There's all kinds of um, old normal things for me that I've recently been able to do again since being vaccinated that I've been like so happy and delighted to do again. But we also realized during COVID, like, maybe we can think of different ways to think about like um, what kind of services governments provide to people. Uh, maybe we need to think about 
rights to housing and eviction moratoriums as an infrastructure issue that we need to think about rather than um, simply evicting people and producing a great growing homelessness crisis. So there yeah. were a lot of things or the, you know, great attention to racial disparity that the pandemic has made a lot of people realize who didn't have that knowledge before because of the uh, way in which it much more strongly impacted communities of color. Uh, there, there's things about that normal we maybe don't want to go back to. So instead of using the disruption of normal um, only as a sort of threat and we need to like protect against it, also think of it as an opportunity to rethink what we might like our, our social structures to look like. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, uh, I think there's a group uh, just entitled Don't Go Back to Normal. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> normal is not so great, or for, not for a lot of people anyway. Yeah, and you hear this push too, and um, there's a, a phrase about uh, can we finally go eat brunch again or <laughs> whatever in politics <laughs> right now, where everybody's complaining that during Trump they couldn't go eat eat brunch because they had to, uh, uh, you know, care about all the crazy stuff that Trump was doing, and now they don't have to care anymore. And it's like, yeah, you know, it might not be affecting us individually as much, you know, living in the suburbs or whatever, but. Um, still got to care about these things, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I'm certainly no fan of Trump, but, um, he, he speaks for, uh, a lot of people who have similar kinds of ideas and he has a lot of political allies. So the fact that he's not there doesn't mean that these ideas are still not a part of the political landscape we need to negotiate. Yep. 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 Definitely. And now, you know, there, there's a, I guess there's a little bit of irony there that now might even be the time where it's more important, where we have a little bit of power to <laughs> change some things. Yeah. Yes. Oh man. Yep. Now we're, then, now we're back into dystopia. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, it's so interesting that the, just the kind of like the point about, you know, what the, um, kind of corporate science fiction or innovation study stuff does, doesn't question because it, because it does seem, it seems like it carries a lot of important value. Like I've seen some work on, you know, what does it look like to, um, I, I don't know if you know the company Axon, but you know, their, their mission is to get rid of the bullet. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they make tasers and police body cameras and stuff like that. And they did some kind of interesting science fiction, both the uh, CEO wrote in his book, some sort of science fiction stories. And I think they've also done some comic books and stuff like that. And it is interesting because they show, you know, in some ways, definitely a better world. But now that I'm thinking back on it, like, yeah, it's kind of like the existing power, you know, <laughs> dynamics that are at play there to, to a large extent. Uh, so it seems like there is value, but you have to keep track of what assumptions are staying constant. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's also important to realize it's an ongoing process, right? Like, yep. just like Utopia's process is, because um, I'm not against getting rid of bullets. And then, like, maybe that's, you get rid of bullets, and then you start thinking about, like, um, do we still need tasers, or do we need tasers that are incapacitating in these ways? And uh, I know I'm just repeating myself now, but again, like, I think this is why narrative and storytelling and and science fiction is so valuable because you're you're thinking about a number of like overlapping and intersecting um factors simultaneously when you have to build a whole world and complex characters and tell a story that's going to happen within that world whereas when you're trying to do it from a sort of policy point of view you're thinking about very targeted interventions and then you'll maybe like fix one problem that you are thinking about and targeting. And I don't mean to denigrate that at all, but there might be unanticipated 
consequences from, so if you take guns away, then this other thing happens that we didn't think about because we were thinking about guns. Um, and a science fiction story, I'm not saying it, it it's always going to get everything perfect, but it does have to build a more fully realized model of the world in which its characters go about and do things mm-hmm. than a sort of scenario planning document has a very sort of sketched oh, out vision of the world, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. The, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I know, uh, oh, I don't know if we can plug this or not. Nick can cut this afterwards, but I know he's been working on some amazing fantasy stuff. And one of the things that he's described is just how intense it is to um, make those worlds and how you have to really think about your, I guess, path dependence in writing the novel <laughs> in how you're building. Are you building the uh, maps first or the geography first or uh, what are all the interplays and dynamics and the, what, you're, what you're pointing out there on how that puts certain constraints in realism and sort of forces you to think through certain things, I think is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, I hope this this can stay in the episode, um, uh, but it sounds fantastic. And and I mean, I think that's one way to think also about the um, science part of speculative fiction that, because um, I know that this is a fantasy novel, but there's a kind of like scientific method behind really rigorously thinking through these questions to their sort of end, logical endpoint, rather than just being like, oh, and then, you know, they're going to get cold while they're on their quest. So then they come across a blanket tree and then they've got blankets and then, and then they're good to go kind of thing to actually like really rigorously develop their world. Absolutely. Um, well, as we're sort of getting towards the end of the episode here, I, um, I'm curious if you can speak to kind of like what, um, like, are there things that you're excited? And maybe, maybe we'll start at, uh, it seems like it's interesting to see like the the medium transform a little bit. You know, we started with kind of like books and now I have like TV shows and movies and video games. Like, are there sort of like mediums that you see that are like particularly exciting or sort of like new things people are trying? So I personally am really excited about television right now, but that also, um, I also teach courses in television studies. So I also know more about television than I do about other media. So that is, I don't mean to suggest there's not things going on in sure, other media. Yeah. Uh, I think overall we're seeing in both independent and in sort of Hollywood mainstream media industries, a real commitment to diversity. And I think that that's a, probably the most exciting thing that's going on right now. Um, not only for the sort of political social justice reasons, although that certainly matters to me, but also just diverse voices and diverse storytelling is, is better, fuller, richer storytelling that, that, um, better corresponds to the diverse, rich world in which we live. Um, so I think that that is exciting that we're getting these new stories or new takes on old stories. I know that there's a lot going on in video games and there's very important and difficult conversations to have, especially around gender in video games, yeah. but I am not at all a video game scholar. So I've read some critical work on that, but I, the last game I played was like double dragon. So I cannot speak <laughs> knowledgeability to the gaming, but in terms of television, I mean, it's not only science fiction where things are interesting in television right now, but um, we could, uh, and say that there's a sort of science fictional component to it from the sense that um, the technologies of um, production and distribution have radically changed in the last 20 years. Um, And so streaming has enabled 
all kinds of uh, kinds kinds of episodes and lengths of episodes that the sort of old commercial model of needing to be like on the hour and have space for commercial breaks and, um, you know, have uh, sort of repetitive uh, um, uh, structures to the episodes in this sort of old model of how television worked, that really restricted what was possible in storytelling. And so new ways of distributing through streaming and online and sort of more niche marketing and the fact that people can make fantastic video on like their iPhone now means like there's not such a barrier to entry to um, a wider range of people. So the sort of uh, for television right now, which is the, the medium I know the most about, there's like a real exciting synergy between um, changes in the affordances of the technologies to make these things and places to distribute them and the much more interesting, complex kinds of stories uh, visually and narratively that we're seeing in the medium. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know I've seen it just personally where it used to be difficult to find an interesting science fiction television show. Now I log into Netflix and I'm like, wow, this is just overwhelming. Like I could never watch all of this sci-fi. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and especially, I mean, uh, I I have a kind of soft spot for Netflix because it's it's global, and so mm. I'm now able to with ease watch science fiction being made in Norway or in oh, France yeah, or yeah. in India or in Korea. And I mean, before it was like expensive and difficult to try to track down um, this sort of range of voices from from multiple uh, geographics perspectives. And I know there's still a selection process, so there's many things being made in these countries that are not being picked up from Netflix, but it's still much better than it used to be. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's cool to see that uh, expansion too, uh, also just in like written science fiction, like you look at um, was the three-body problem, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, you- and there's like India is having a really great moment of all kinds of writers writing speculative fiction coming from India right now. There's um, stuff. I mean, I guess I should correct myself because it's, it's not necessarily new people are writing this, but it's new that it's being translated into English and globally accessible. Yeah. 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 And it's fascinating, right? Cause it's like, like I read three body problem, but you know, it's like, I'm glad I read it, you know, and there's lots of interesting stuff and it's also like, Oh yeah, that seems like really authoritarian. And like, I don't know if I like that part, <laughs> but I'm glad I read it. It gives me a little bit of like insight into, and like, I see how it's trying to like solve a problem that the book is bringing up, you know? Right. And so. Uh, well, and it- something that I really appreciated about three body problem is, um, there, there are moments in the trilogy where the choices around what makes sense to do are really counterintuitive to what would make sense from like a North American perspective. And so it really does show you this sort of uh, synergy between the dominant values in, in a culture and a nation state and what's possible or realistic to imagine from that, that dominant values point of view. Totally. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if we can give a super quick description, but basically kind of like a uh, alien invasion story written by a, a Chinese science fiction author and kind of like how we deal with that. Yeah. Can I give a really quick synopsis? Please. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'll go try. Ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, it's Liu Shixen, I believe is how one pronounces it. I probably butchered that, so I apologize. And um, it has to do with making contact with an extraterrestrial um uh, civilization and then finding out that they're hostile towards earth. And so like, what does it mean to be, what does it mean to organize globally to be able to meet the problem of an invading alien force, which because it's a hard science fiction work and is attentive to sort of the, um, 
difference between how fast uh, information can travel through space and how fast physical objects can travel through space, they do have like a generation to uh, or more to prepare for this um, invasion to come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, super, super interesting work. Um, it's it's worth a read, I think. Um, but yeah, and I love also just um, uh, e- even when the authors kind of like aren't of the culture that they're writing about. Sometimes you get those really interesting works like uh, the I think the Babylonian science fiction. Uh, I forget who wrote that. It was a short story. Um, it's about the tower. Uh, oh, to Ted. Heaven. Yes, uh, Ted Chang. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the most exciting writers in the field today, I would say, uh, probably best known, um, because the film arrival, uh, is based on a story of his, the story of your life. Um, and he recently published a new collection, uh, exhalation. So everyone should go out and buy that. Uh, and he also recently had a great article in the New York times, if memory serves, um, about, uh, automation and robots where he basically said like, uh, Oh, the New Yorker. Thank you, Nick, for correcting us. Um, that uh, said that, you know, all the things that people articulate when they talk about fears of robots and fears of automation are really fears of capitalism, right? Because it's like robots will take your jobs or this and that. And it's like, well, if we could have the robots do the work and still have everybody like with a good income and things like that, robots might seem a lot less scary than they seem right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you know, I'm curious if people want to get involved, you know, try to help push some of these, you know, more diverse science fiction things or writing about more topics or kind of getting involved if maybe they, they feel like they want to share something from their field that they're excited about. Um, like how, how are different people, how, like, is there ways that you're aware of or different competitions that are going on or, or different things that you're excited about that people can get involved with? So, um, X prize, uh, which is interested in sort of, um, futures and thinking about the future and technology to solve problems they have a film competition that's going to be coming up soon that they will be promoting. I don't think the announcements are out yet, but about um, they're interested in these questions of like AGI and automation and economic futures. And so they have a film competition where they're looking for people to be able to make uh, short films that uh, explore these issues. Um, So that's one way to get involved. There are, um, uh, for people who are interested in like sharing ideas or being in dialogue with people, um, there's two organizations I'm involved in, which uh, host annual conferences where um, people present um, work on this and have roundtable discussions and things like that. One is the Science Fiction Research Association, and one is the International Association for the Fantastic in the Arts. And the latter, the fantastic is... uh, because it's horror and the Gothic and, and fantasy and, and all different kinds of genres. And, um, the second organization IFA, um, has just recently, um, created a new, um, BIPOC caucus, um, BIPOC being black indigenous and people of color caucus. And so, um, we are seeking donations in support of that caucus to help, um, enable uh, people from diverse backgrounds to be able to come to the conference, to be able to contribute. Uh, they, um, the conference brings together people who are creatives um, writing and creating the fiction as well as scholars. Um, and then it also hosts the um, Indigenous Futurism Award. So this is an award that has been given out for two years now. 
and it, it um, is an award that honors an indigenous author who um, creates the um, best speculative fiction of the year. So it's it went to print fiction this past year, but it but it's in any medium. So there's lots of ways that people are really seeking to um, uh, support those who um, have traditionally or more traditionally not been at the center of science fiction to help um, provide financial support for people to have the resources to be part of these conversations. And I guess I should also give a plug for my own program because my graduate students are always in need of support. And so uh, at the University of California, Riverside, um, I direct a program which is called um, Speculative um, Fictions and the Cultures of Science. And we're interested in a wide range of ways of thinking about how um, science and technology uh, intersect um, with multiple kinds of cultural perspectives and the different kinds of futures that can produce. And I have grad students working on fantastic uh, and innovative research projects. And we're always looking for support to either help support the students to be able to travel to conferences or to bring speakers in and things like that. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing all those. Hopefully we can get some people excited and um, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been uh, such a pleasure. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I was just, I was listening. I was like, Oh my God, there's all these authors that we didn't talk about China Miavel, you know, all these other folks. <laughs> and I feel like we could just talk for hours, but uh, yeah, thanks so much. And I hope you have uh, a great day and keep, uh, keep writing and educating us about the future. <laughs> Well, no, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's my pleasure. Um, I could always talk about science fiction every day. And if not with me, I hope you have another guest where you can talk about all the authors we didn't get to because it's such an exciting field and there's so much more to say. Absolutely. All right. Take care, Cheryl. Bye.